Very good singing. Please be seated. We are in a study of the Gospel of John in the blessed 17th chapter as our Lord makes the longest prayer of the New Testament. Um, a beautiful prayer. We began last time as he prayed for himself that the Father would glorify him in those whom he has been given. And then the prayer, starting in verse 6, turns toward the disciples. And uh, we uh, pick up in chapter 17, verse 6. Once again, I'd like to read to you the, the whole prayer, not very long. So many of the phrases you'll see go together and bind the whole prayer in one. This prayer is not just for them, but also for us. And I'd like for some of these... Uh, phrases to be able to settle into your mind and heart a little more. Let's read together from John chapter 17. And Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me, out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, such blessed intercession from our Lord Jesus, speaking not at all of our many sins and failings, but so blessedly lifting up to you a desire that we too, being sanctified by your name and kept, may be preserved not only uh, holy, but also full of love, full of the blessed unity which you yourself have always had, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, we pray that more and more in our day, in our hearts and lives, that these petitions may be fulfilled. And in the church abroad, in the church militant in the world, we pray that you would continue to fulfill your word. May your kingdom come and this holy will of our Lord's be done in earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I read the whole chapter, but we concentrate mostly on the central part, the part that speaks about us going into the world. We live in an anxious, uh, high-pressure time, and I'd like to begin by giving you a few lines from a newspaper editorial that reads this way. The world is too big and too fast. There is too much doing, too many wars, crimes, casualties, excitements and marvels. Try as you will, you get behind in the race in spite of yourself. In an incessant strain to keep pace, and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world gets up with new scenes so fast that you are out of breath trying to keep up with them. There are so many new great books, which not to know is heresy. So many new actors, new discoveries, new sciences, new improvements, new gossip. So many shouting at the world with all their might to get the world's attention that your head whirls. Everything is high pressure. Human nature cannot endure so much. That was an article from March of 1857 <laughs> in an editorial discussing the impending completion of the transatlantic cable. I didn't believe it until I looked it up. And when I looked it up, I found something very interesting. That this article is not only legit, they kept citing it again and again and again over the years as every generation marvels. You could find it, by the way, in Harper's Magazine from uh, 18, excuse me, from 1946 as they published it to astonish their readers. I mean, what were they complaining about post-war 80 years ago? They didn't even have Twitter, okay? <laughs> My point to you in the beginning is this. Every generation is certain that theirs is the most overwhelming, the most challenging, the most hopeless, the most difficult to navigate. And the truth is that the world has always been the world, and it will always be it until the end. 
Now, it is never easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and clearly, sometimes are particularly difficult. We will perhaps be living in such a time, but it has never been easy, and it never will. On the eve of our Lord's crucifixion, the Lord prays for his disciples, whom he is sending into the world in a very difficult time. They, he says, are not of the world, but they will be in the world, and the world will hate them for it. And so, as a result, we find the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible. I mean, arguably the most important prayer in the Bible, if you think of it that way. It's a prayer for his disciples and for us, whom he likewise sends into the world. In light of two great temptations that are faced in every generation. The first great temptation, he mentions, is the temptation to conform to the world. The world, Jesus says, will hate the disciples so long as they are like Christ and sanctified by the truth. And the first temptation in every generation is to avoid such hatred by conforming ourselves to the world. And in every generation, some heresy or sect will arise, compromising the truth at the very point where it is under the most assault by the world. It's true in the Bible. It's been true in every age since it was finished. There is a danger of conformity. And Jesus, therefore, prays that we might be sanctified by the truth from the world that hates us. But there is another great temptation that likewise comes upon every generation. As Sir Isaac Newton might say, it's a temptation in the equal and opposite direction. Other Christians, refusing to forsake the truth, will nevertheless fail the Lord in the opposite way. They, too, will seek to escape the world's hatred, but being unwilling to give up the truth, they will do it by withdrawing from the world. Rather than compromise, they will beat a sanctified retreat to a place of relative quiet and safety. They are not of the world but neither will they be in the world. And there is the great danger of um, uh, escape. Now, being a friend to sinners, as Jesus was, is um, a matter of danger for us. Paul puts it this way elsewhere. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And we can see that happening around us. There is a profound danger. And so... Recognizing that danger, in every generation, some sect or even heresy will arise, offering apparently a more holy, a more righteous form of Christianity that gives us the illusion of remaining faithful to the truth while we are being unfaithful to our calling and beating a holy retreat from the world. Those who fall into the second temptation excuse themselves from conflict, just as worldly Christians do but in the opposite direction. Now, the third option, which is the only possible way of faithfulness in the Word of God, is exceedingly difficult. It is the way that will lead us into direct conflict with the world and expose us to its hatred. It requires us to be in it, but not of it. To have a, 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 a holy difference, but a healthy presence. In the Bible, and in most ages of the church, such people are a minority, even though they are the greatest people of every age, of whom the world is not worthy. 
They are in the world, but they're not of the world. Or to quote the book of Revelation, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Jesus himself was sent into the world on such a divine mission. He mentions it many times in this book. He came, he said, to testify to the truth, to seek and to save the lost, to glorify his Father in the world, and so forth. In the world, and yet with the hatred of the world at every point. And Jesus sends his disciples and us on the same mission. As you sent me into the world, Father, verse 18, I also have sent them into the world. So the great question, of course, is how in the world are we going to be able to fulfill this responsibility, this mission, given the dangers that we've mentioned? How is it that we are going to be faithful in such a mission in our day? Well, we need three things. The things for which Jesus prays in the middle of this chapter. We're going to need, first, holiness through God's word. Second, confidence in God's protection. And third, joy in God's Son. That will be our outline for today, our three needs. First, we need holiness through God's word. Jesus emphasizes it twice here, starting in verse 16. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart for your holy service. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I have given them your word, he prays. So, I think it's obvious, but I'll say it anyway. It's what you pay me for. You and I need a steady dose of sanctifying truth if we are going to make any impact in the world and stay faithful ourselves. It is the truth that sanctifies us and the truth that will set us free, especially free from the uh, hatred of the world. This is how we are going to fulfill our calling. There's a, a saying that goes like this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who is not. Get it? A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone that is not. Uh, It's the Bible that puts the steel into our backbone when the going gets tough. You've got to know it, and you've got to believe it sincerely. This is what's going to make the impact, indeed, on the world, not just upon you. There is something compelling and attractive about a person who believes the truth with deep conviction. It moves people when they find somebody who knows what they believe and why. The kind of confidence and authenticity, sincerity that they evince. Uh, one, One preacher sometimes said that his secret was this. He would light himself on fire and then people would watch as he burned. Um, That was surely George Whitfield's secret. I remember the story about the skeptic, the Scottish philosopher, David Hume, who was hurrying down a lane, and somebody asked him where he was going. He said, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. His friend was surprised and said, well, Dr. Hume, you certainly don't believe what Mr. Whitfield preaches, do you? Hume says, no, but he does. He wanted to hear him preach a man in earnest. Or we could maybe think about a more contemporary illustration. You think about the 
the, the young Billy Graham coming in so much thunder onto the scene with his passionate preaching, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, uh, came across this week a testimony by John Stott, who said it was 1954 that Billy Graham first hit the headlines in Britain with his Greater London Crusade. Approximately 12,000 people came to the Haringey Arena every night for three months. Most nights I was there myself. And as I looked around that vast crowd, I could not help comparing it with our half-empty churches. Why did these people come to listen to Billy Graham, I asked myself, when they don't come to listen to us? Now, I'm sure that many answers could have been given justly to that question. But the answer I kept giving myself was this. There is an incontrovertible sincerity about that young American evangelist. Even his fiercest critics all concede that he is sincere. I really believe that he is the first transparently sincere Christian preacher that many of these people have ever heard. Their preachers, at least, didn't preach like they believed it. Billy preached like he believed it. And 25 years later, Stott says, I found no reason to change my mind. This will be our secret, not only for ourselves, but for the world. That Jesus gives to us here in prayer, that our inner strength comes from being sanctified by the truth, for God's word is truth. This was one of the great errors of liberal theology that tried to maintain a holy life apart from the truth of God's word. They said that Jesus was a, a godly man, a holy man, a man from God, an example to follow in faith and generosity, love and justice. If only we could live like Jesus. But at the same time, they were cluttering, they were clearing out the foundations, rather. They, they were convincing themselves and trying to convince others that the Bible was full of myths and stories. They wanted to have true holiness without the truth of God's word. And we've seen the collapse. Jesus declares the very opposite is true. How are you going to be sanctified? Is it not by the truth? God's word is truth. And we make no apologies for being a church that is committed to be ultimately concerned with the truth of God's word. That's a non-negotiable. Parents, hear the Lord's word in verse 19 as he prays, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That's how our Lord made a difference in his disciples. Just as Christ set, him apart, set himself apart for this holy service for their sake, you are to do the same. Being a hypocrite is a surefire way to turn off your kids from Christ and the church, telling them one thing, living a different way, coming down hard with all sorts of rules and exhortations that you yourself don't care about. Tell them that Jesus needs to be really important when it's plain that he's not important in yours. If you want to make a difference in those disciples, in your children's sanctification and in the world, the same principle applies. You sanctify yourself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That was our Lord's confession. This is essential for all of our calling. Jesus prays this about his disciples. Verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world's hated them. 
Because we're Christ, because we believe and live by his word, we must face the hatred of the world. The world is always going to try to conform us, to adopt its beliefs and its practices, to cause us to lose our salt and our savor and conform us to the world's expectations until there's no difference. It means that in every generation, as I said earlier, there's going to be a great temptation for the church to accommodate himself to the spirit of the age at the very point in which it's under attack. Or Abraham Kuyper in a magnificent observation says it's like this. He writes, heresies arise on a Christian territory by a fixed law like a mirage. They are a necessary deflection of the light of Christianity in the spiritual atmosphere of a given age. End quote. In other words, in every age, just as a, a, a mirage will appear on the road with certain atmospheric conditions and bend the light in a certain way, in every age, every age likewise, the atmosphere of this world will bend the light and truth of the church in a predictable way. In every age, heresies arise to make the church more acceptable to the world's whims. Or Francis Schaeffer said it even more directly. He says, you tell me what the church is, excuse me, tell me what the world is saying today. I'll tell you what the churches will be saying in 20 years. And that is why, not only individually, but together, we must be sanctified by the truth to be in the world, but not of it. Heresies arise in every generation promising us that we can be faithful Christians without this reproach, without rejecting the fashionable ways of thought of the world. Heresies are not absurd ideas as a rule. They are, on the contrary, insidious, powerful forms of falsehood that gain strength quietly in the church precisely because they provide us a way to remain Christians and up-to-date fashionably. They are ways of thinking that seem so reasonable to a time and place, and we are always tempted to mute the faith, to commend ourselves in a laudable way to others. I won't go through the statistics to show you what Christians believe versus what the world believes. There's enough of that going around. This is why it happens. This heresy that is so predictable, this false teaching in the church, which it borrows from the world, it not only destroys the souls of people here, it cripples our witness out there, which is the concern of the chapter. Who will speak to the world if the church doesn't believe? If the very pillar and foundation of the truth has lost it? The church will not be conquered from outside. That won't happen. The Lord is, is plain. And if you ask them, well, why do churches go bad? Why do they lose their way? It's, it, it, it's, it's this. You ask, why do churches in great number that once stood for the gospel of Christ now spout smooth slogans to hardly empty sanctuaries that sound more like Oprah Winfrey and MSNBC uh, morning show uh, why is it that churches no longer interest even their own children? Why do they never witness the revolutionary impact of the gospel of Christ on a human life? The answer is this. In every case, they have made their peace with the world. They have weakened or obliterated the opposition 
the conflict that must exist between truth and falsehood. Literally, the churches of Chrysostom and Augustine, Francis and Bernard, Calvin and Knox, Owen and Bunyan, Whitfield and Edwards, Charles Simeon and J.C. Ryle, if you go and visit them this day, they are dead. And in every case, it was a self-inflicted wound that killed them. It's bad enough that the church has to endure the rage of the world, but then when the world comes into the church, when the church is persecuted by those inside, when those sanctified by the word are persecuted by those inside, it comes with a ferocious intensity. And this is the way it's been since the beginning, why the, why the prophets were killed by their own, why the Lord himself was killed by the church, as it were, of his day. This is the danger of every generation in conforming to the world. We, individually and together, as parents, from generation to generation, we must be sanctified by the truth if we are to fulfill our mission. Nothing, nothing new there, but we need to hear it again. We also, secondly, need confidence in God's protection. Confidence in God's protection. As I mentioned earlier, fear is a great enemy of our faithful uh, performance of our mission, of our calling. And so it is that our Lord lets us overhear in his powerful prayer such words, verse 11, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep, uh, guard, protect, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Our Lord is sending us out into a a great wide world, a great bad world, uh, full of spiritual danger. Where is the source of our confidence? Well, here it is. As Paul wrote to Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Because we know that if God is going to send us then he is going to keep us and be with us because what God begins, he finishes, right? That he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so this confidence, this courage, shall I say, that results not from who we are. These are sheep going out into the world of wolves, right? It comes not from who we are but from God's protection. This is the essential part of our calling. The righteous are bold as a lion. It's the wicked that's supposed to flee when no man pursues. The Pharisees of Jesus' day thought that to be holy, you had to avoid all contact with sinners and were scandalized when Jesus chose a tax collector named Matthew or Levi as one of his own apostles (laughs) and then went to a dinner party where... He invited all of his notoriously sinful friends, and there he is found at table again and again. It, it, it scandalized them, I say. This man's a friend of sinners, they, they would joke. 
Jesus said, friend of sinners, you have no idea. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I eat with publican and sinners, yes. And this relationship with them was not purely social. It was redemptive. But the common people heard him gladly. Or we could think of Paul's winsome witness to the world. And, uh, you know, brilliant man that he was. It wasn't just in the scriptures. He was obviously widely read in Greco-Roman poetry and literature, so he's able to quote their own philosophers and prophets from memory. He speaks about the, uh, the games and the sports as though he's, he'd seen them himself, although I guarantee his parents would not have let a little uh, kosher Jewish boy go and see a bunch of naked men running around, as that's how they used to do it, right? But he, but he, but he, was, able, he was able to take them on because the first century needed such men who could stand their ground before the finest minds of Athens and persuade them of the truth. Now, our Lord rarely prayed negatively, but he's left this prayer here for us, the prayer that says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He prays for us to be kept, not kept out of the world, but kept safe and secure in the arms of our Holy Father and by his mighty name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are saved. So keep them by your name, he prays. As you've sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Or as he says elsewhere, you are the salt of the earth. You know, salt doesn't accomplish very much if it's still in the salt shaker. You are the light of the world. And he asks, why would you light a lamp and then hide it under a bushel? Oftentimes, Christ's people are looking for an escape from the world. And no wonder, because verse 14, the world has hated them. Who wants to be hated? It's a place of spiritual danger. Bad company corrupts good morals. We, we do rightly desire an escape. And of course, Jesus and his disciples often went on a period of refreshment, right? But ordinarily, Jesus points them into the opposite direction. I'm not telling you to run out. I'm telling you to run into the fire. There is, nevertheless, in every generation an escapist Christianity. Again, some heresy or sect that will allow people to withdraw and have peace with honor, right? To be able, they suppose, to wave the banner of faithfulness as they hide in their bunker. One day in the third century, a man named Antony went out into the desert and became a Christian monk and started a kind of revolution in the church. Interestingly, too, you know who was mostly responsible for his success? It was Athanasius. I mean, Athanasius, the man who took on the world, Athanasius Contramundum, right? The world was going after Arianism. He stood alone and uh, called, the, called, the, called them back, and exile after exile, the emperor sent him away. Uh, amazing. It was Athanasius's uh, fourth century book, The Life of Antony, that proved decisively influential in getting so many to follow Antony into a monastic life. Of course, some of those early monastic uh, um, cloisters as well didn't keep people in, especially in Ireland and other places, right? The monks, yeah, they lived together, but then they went out every day. Maybe that's more to the point. But so often, a Christian monasticism is viewed as the solution to our problems. 
Now, the theological errors at the heart of this are terrible in their corruption at some point, but at least at times when there was in the world virtually no one preserving a knowledge of the truth as a certain darkness settled upon Christian Europe, we do have to remember their service. And we have just to think that really uh, Aquinas, the two Bernards of Clairvaux and Cluny, Francis of Assisi, Jan Hus, Savonarola, Martin Luther, these were all monastic men. So there was something very important that came through their ministry, don't get me wrong. My point is simply this. Christians are to be spiritually separate, but not socially segregated. We are to be insulated from the world's philosophy, not isolated from the world's people. Jesus himself, at various points, is described as separate from sinners with respect to his morality and a friend of sinners with respect to his location. We read on the one hand that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, Hebrews 7, and we also read that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Matthew 11. Pure from sin, yet present with sinners. That is the difficulty. God could have just dumped chick tracks from heaven if he wanted to in order to get the good news down here without actually coming down into the grind himself. He could have written a message in the sky, but he delivered it to us in the most personal and present way and coming right down, down, down to where we are. And from this passage, he sends us down to that same calling as well. Um, Or to change the metaphor, there's no hiding a city set on a hill. You don't put that lamp under a bushel. You put it on a stand to give light to the whole house. You need a healthy presence. So the men may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And you notice that Jesus is not remotely pessimistic about what his people will do. Men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, he says elsewhere. These people who heard the prayer are the same people who will turn the world upside down. And think of the, think of the challenges in their day. I mean, Rome was militaristic, hedonistic, polytheistic. I mean, pretty soon Rome would be outlawed after the fire in Rome. In the midst of all that darkness and decadence, what did they do? They didn't throw up their hands in despair and say, well, there's nothing we could do in this faithless and perverse culture. No, those, those peasants, those fishermen, through the power of God, became the victors. And we need to have confidence. God has not given you a spirit of fear, right? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. We need, to have, we need to listen to the Lord praying for us and have confidence as we go forward. We need to be sanctified by God's truth. We need to have confidence in God's protection. And thirdly and finally, which will be my concluding point also today, we need joy in God's Son. For in the middle of all this, conflict, hatred, right, um, In the middle of this uh, middle section of the prayer, we we come to verse 13. Now I come to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We, We need to be sanctified in the truth. We need confidence in God's protection. We need joy. Joy in God's Son, that we may have his joy 
fulfilled in ourselves. It's hard to overstate the importance of joy for the success of our mission or the strength of our own faith. As I prayed earlier, the joy of the Lord must be our strength. We know people that are confident in God and that are sanctified in the truth and yet are completely bereft of joy and bring no joy to others. But the kingdom of God is, Romans 14, a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is a matter of joy. Jesus says the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man finds and for joy sells all that he has and buys that field. The practice of sin is going to cloud our joy. You don't keep number, point number one. You won't be able to keep point number three. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, cried out to God, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. For happiness comes from holiness. You, you have fear. You don't keep point two. You will not have point three either. Joy and fear don't exist, coexist in the heart. Joy matters so greatly to your life and to the life of your children, to your relationship with others, to the health of the church, to the glory of God in the world. They were going to stone Stephen in a few minutes, right? And they look at him and his face is like the face of an angel. C.S. Lewis was not overstating the point when he said that it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. Okay, so this is not the joy of circumstances or temperament, obviously, but rather the joy that comes from the Lord. It's Christ's joy, that is, from focusing on and trusting in the Lord himself and his salvation, sharing all that brought him joy in us. Christians, uh, we need this. Christ is praying only for what we need for a healthy spiritual life. We need to have joy to have victory in a thousand ways. You, you start to get discouraged. You start to feel very unholy or very fearful, and you need to worry about your joy. When we're not joyful in the Lord, we're not also growing in grace and fruitfulness and service to the Lord as we ought. We're not joyful seeking the joy of others cause of a myriad of other sins. You remember the disciples at one point are beaten by the Sanhedrin, the same people that killed the Lord, and they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. This is a people that is unconquerable, right? You put them in prison, they're singing hymns and converting the jailer, right? What can you do to such people? What resources we have for joy? When we are joyful in the Lord, we can endure all things. For surely in Christ... We have a Savior who has promised to be with us to the end, who has given us not only a truth to believe and a life to be lived, but the passion to make it all so wonderfully, so personally rich, pleasing, satisfying, and exciting. And we are not to rest until we are as happy and full of joy in the Lord as we can be and should be. We must, therefore, apply these three doctrines to ourselves. Oh, if you lack peace, apply the truth of Christ to your own soul as you would apply a band-aid to your wound. Speak to your heart about the Son of God who's come into the world to bring you peace with God and to intercede for you now at God's right hand that the love with which 
the Father loved the Son is in you and Christ in you and the love which will never be removed. Or if you're lacking courage, reminding yourself that you know who your Savior and King is and how foolish it is for a Christian to shrink back in cowardice when the living God is in us and for us. And what can man do to me? Here as Jesus prays that we should be holy or distinct from the world that in order that we might experience the fullness of his joy. If you're here and you say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Christianity seems to be the furthest thing from joy. Well, maybe you don't know anything about Jesus because I tell you it was the joy that was set before him, which we read even brought him through the cross. And it's the joy that will make all the difference, the, the power in your life, and not only in your life, but your victory in the world. Father, he says, I come to you, but these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, joy. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify us likewise. Make us to be not only faithful and courageous, holy, but joyful. And to you will be the praise in our lives, in the church, but most especially in the world, our Father, in such a dark and discouraging day when the bad news is always before us. We pray that the news of your victory, the victory that you have won in Jesus, in which we share, that the news of victory would be the strength of our heart. 